you have your Bibles, if you turn in them to James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 this morning. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, then you are welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. You'll find this on the New Testament portion of it, which is the second half on page 179. And if you don't happen to have a Bible of your own that you can read, we would be honored if you would take that as our congregation's gift to you if you'll commit to read it. Before we dive into the first section of two, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, we do come before you pleading that you through Christ would speak to our hearts, that by your Spirit we might be drawn into deeper walk with you, that we might sense your presence more keenly from having spent time in your word with your people this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 4 through 6, we see that God is jealous for His people's affections. God is jealous for His people's affections. Look at verses 4 through 6. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Now, in our passage from last week, James rebuked these early Christians for following the wisdom of this world instead of the wisdom from above. The world's way of thinking kept on showing up in their relationships with one another in all kinds of different sin-induced fights. The world's influence was seeping into their lives like sewage spilling over from their hearts. And James wanted them to know, and us now, just how big a deal that is. In fact, James is writing to Christians, but he addresses them there in verse 4 as adulterous people. In fact, the word that he's actually using is adulteresses, not just because in some way he's singling out the women in the congregation, but because he's drawing from the rich Old Testament and now New Testament imagery of God's people being his bride. And he is saying, you as God's people have been unfaithful. You have broken that vow to forsake all others. You see, we can't even be friends with the world and still be friends with God. And James says, whoever wants to be friends with the world is making themselves an enemy of God. Whoever wants to be friends with the world is committing spiritual adultery against God. Now, does that sound a little extreme to you? Do you just find yourself instinctively feeling like maybe James is overstating his point? We wouldn't necessarily call one of our friends an enemy because they wanted to be friends with other people. We wouldn't necessarily call our spouse adulterous if they wanted to be friends 
with other people. But in either of those cases, either with friendship or with marriage, we would call it that if our relationship with them had been called into question. And that's what James is getting at. You see, our relationship with the Lord is an exclusive one. You can't pursue darkness and say you love the light. The two are opposed to each other. And the kind of friendship James is talking about conveys a certain kind of like-mindedness that comes from agreeing about something, either Arkansas football or beekeeping. Amos 3.3 says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The obvious answer being no. There is a linking of lives in view here that brings with it a certain comfort and enjoyment from familiarity. And when we desire this kind of friendship with the world, it reveals our hearts aren't wholly true to God. Ultimately, it reveals that we have stopped believing that God is enough. You see, if we see God as all-satisfying, all-providing, all-sustaining, then we'll stop looking for anyone or anything else to fill some void because there won't be any void for them to fill. Flashlights are useless when you're standing on the surface of the sun. And that means when we do look anywhere other than God, we dishonor God. We lie about who He is and what He is worthy of, and thereby we make ourselves His enemies. Now, of course, we don't set out to make ourselves His enemies. That's not what we intend to do. But instead of allowing God to shape our worldview, we often allow the world to shape our view of God. So then we grow restless and discontent. We begin to believe, maybe God is holding me back from a a better life that's out there. Maybe there's some happiness, some, some fun or excitement that maybe God can't give me. We find ourselves thinking things like, I know the Bible says this, but God wants me to be happy. So then we turn our creature comforts, we turn to them instead of the Creator to satisfy the longings of our hearts. But as we have all found, even this week, that only leads to brokenness in the end. So then how can we know if we're friends with the world? Well, the simplest answer that I know of is you know you're friends with the world if you aren't battling worldliness in your life. How would you answer these questions? Does your heart rise and fall for the same reasons the world does? Do you respond to conflict and difficulties that come with life just like the world does? Are the ways that you use your time, your money, 
and your resources the same as the world does and for the same reasons? Is the content that you're putting in your mind through all different forms, media, entertainment, is that helping or hurting your pursuit of Jesus? Church, does our love of comfort condemn us as friends of the world instead of commend us as sojourners passing through this world? Is the reason that we experience so little persecution from our culture because we look so much like our culture? Friends, it's uncomfortable. It's easy to say. It's hard to live. But don't we understand we, in a way, shouldn't fit in here? We're called to be distinct from the world for the sake of the Gospel. So that our aim shouldn't be to imitate the world as closely as possible while still being Christian. We must not, for the sake of comfort, make ourselves enemies of God. And the Bible tells us plainly that all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And that means that often being faithful will require us to suffer. Church, holding firmly to the Bible's teaching on the sanctity of human life, gender issues, the definition of marriage, resolving conflict, extending forgiveness, the dangers of materialistic consumerism, the way we should use our retirement years, and so on. If you hold the Bible's teaching on these positions, it will land you in hot water with an increasing number of people in our nation. But we must not bow to our culture's logic on these issues, even if it feels like we're swimming upstream. We need to realize that worldliness can seep into our minds and into our hearts much more subtly than just these obvious positions down to the very aim of who we are and what we try to do. Even a half degree shift will land us off course in the end. We must be solely devoted to the Lord. And God demands an exclusive relationship because like any good husband, He will not share His bride. And James is essentially saying in verse 5, oh, you don't believe me? You think that's too strong? Well, this is exactly what the Bible teaches. But if you look at your Bible for a footnote of where this quotation comes from, you won't find one. And that's because he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us is not a direct quotation of Scripture. It is a clear principle throughout Scripture. There are all kinds of passages that lead James to make this statement. It's everywhere through the pages of the Bible. God is jealous for His people because He loves them and because we bear His name. But God's jealousy isn't like the bitter, sinful jealousy James has rebuked them for in chapter 3. God's jealousy is pure and holy. 
It's right for God to be jealous when His people are unfaithful. He will not sit idly by while we flirt with the world. And as those who are members of the New Covenant community, God has put His own Spirit within us. We are indwelt by the very presence of Almighty God. We are united with Him when we believe. We are a temple of the living God. And because of this, how we live in our bodies must reflect His presence and thereby give Him glory. In a way, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians, as Christ's ambassadors, we are showing those around us what Jesus does and does not do. And that means when we sin, we are bringing reproach on the name that we bear and the Spirit that fills us. And the Bible is filled with examples of just how seriously God takes these offenses. Just to give you two quickly, Isaiah 63 says that when Israel rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, God turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Jehu the prophet rebuked the good king Jehoshaphat when he made an alliance with the evil king Ahab because... In 2 Chronicles 19.2, he said, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Now, these are just two examples, but the question for us today is, does God still do this? Does He oppose His people when they spurn Him, when they try to divide their interests, their friendships? Yes, He does. But what I want to encourage you with is that that's actually a sign of God's grace. God opposes us when we pursue sin, and that is His grace. It is precisely because God is good that He is jealous for our affections. Just think about it. If God is who the Bible says He is, if He's perfect, holy, good, beautiful, pure, light, love, majestic, worthy, and nothing else can even come close to comparing with Him, then it must be His grace when He fights against us when we settle for sin. When our evil plans fall apart, when we face the consequences for our ungodly choices, when we get caught in our secret sins, it's God's grace to us. It's God's grace that exposes our sin and calls us back to Himself Now, it may not feel like God's grace in the moment, but brothers and sisters, it is God's grace. It is our bridegroom wooing us back to Himself. It is our Father calling us home. But here's the thing. If that's the grace He shows us when we pursue sin, how much more grace does He show us when we forsake all others and pursue Him? How much better is it to have God's grace fighting for us instead of against us? 
And that's what I think James is getting at in verse 6 when he says God gives more grace. And he expands on this in verses 7 through 10 where we see that we must be zealous for God's presence. We must be zealous for God's presence. God is jealous for His people's affections and we must be zealous for God's presence. Look at verse 7 through 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, there are ten imperatives here in four verses. James is calling us to give our lives to God, to leave the old, pursue the new, to change what we do and why we do it, to be broken over our sin, and to continue entrusting our lives to Him. We must respond to God's grace by living in a posture all our days of humble repentance We must be zealous for God's presence in our lives in a way that requires us to leave all sin and worldliness behind. And the fact that God gives more grace to the humble than opposes the proud is meant to motivate us to submit ourselves to Him. That's why James says, therefore, in verse 7, if we want to be blessed by God, we must submit to His Word. And if Jesus is our Lord, the world won't be our friend and Satan won't be our boss. When we submit ourselves to God, we are committing to follow Him wherever He leads and obey Him whatever He says. Submission implies coming under Him and not rising over Him. That means even when we don't agree, even if that lack of agreement comes from a lack of understanding on our part, And He's calling us to do what we don't want to do. What we don't feel like doing. And even what we don't understand. The answer is, like an obedient child, we will obey. Is that your commitment, church? Do you obey with joy even when it hurts because you're confident that our loving Master knows what's best for you? the whispers that we so often hear calling us away from God's Word are lies from the evil one. And James charges us to resist him. But I don't think that James is primarily thinking about speaking the name of Jesus or saying, be gone Satan when we're tempted. Though, of course, I'm not discouraging you for doing either of those things. In light of the wisdom that comes from the below, below, as was outlined in chapter 3, verse 15, as earthly, unspiritual, demonic, resisting Satan means not following his way of life. That is, we must not live for ourselves and ourselves alone. We must not give in to the pressure of being self-centered, jealous, and selfishly ambitious. We must not be driven by sinful passages to use James's language. If we're saying yes to God, we are also saying no 
to Satan. And the Bible tells us that after Jesus resisted Satan, Satan left him for a more opportune time. And that means, as an example to us, that we should always be watchful for that roaring lion so that we're not devoured. We must put on the whole armor of God and remain firm in our faith with the sweet assurance that God cares for us and He fights for us. On the other side of this coin looks like drawing near to God, as James says in verse 8. And as with resisting the devil, drawing near to God isn't about a, a mystical or emotional experience for a few special Christians. Drawing near to God looks like walking on the path of the wisdom from above, working to reflect the character of God through our obedience disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. In other words, the way we draw near to God, friends, is through the ordinary means of grace that God Himself has revealed to us in His Word. Now, it's common for well-meaning Christians to be caught up in some sin or to not be experiencing the level of closeness with God that they want and not realize why. But often they admit freely, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not consistently reading my Bible. I'm not really spending much time in prayer. And I'm really not open to developing deeper spiritual relationships with the other members of the church. Now, friends, if you're not pursuing the Lord through these three fundamental aspects of your relationship with Him, is it really all that surprising you don't feel close to Him? If you're not enjoying the rich blessings of intimacy with the Father, then you have left the door to sin and temptation wide open. Of course, there is more to the Christian life than those basic disciplines. We know that. But if the basics are weak, everything else will be too. Now, there is much that we don't know in the Christian life. There are all kinds of questions that we could devote our lives to studying and we wouldn't have answers for. But hear me, I think this is gravely misunderstood in our culture, so please listen. How we grow in our intimacy with Christ isn't one of those unanswerable questions. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret. God wants every Christian to know how we can grow in our relationship with Him because He loves us. Just let that sink in. God wants us to know Him. God wants to be known by you. And we know this because when we draw near to Him, we always find Him ready and willing to go deeper. James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. How incredible is that? This is one of the sweetest promises of the entire Bible, Christian. But this also means if we lack intimacy with God, without any doubt, we are the ones to blame. It's like the elderly couple 
driving into town one afternoon in the same pickup they've had for years with that bench seat that goes all the way across. And the wife looks over at her aged husband from the passenger seat and she says to him, we used to sit so much closer. Without skipping a beat, the husband then replies, honey, I haven't moved. If there's ever distance between us and the Lord's, we're the ones that moved. The problem is, We tend to doubt that we can draw near to God in the ways that He is so clearly outlined in Scripture. We find ourselves looking for more efficient or spectacular ways to see this happen in our lives. So someone writes a book or comes up with a ministry to take you somewhere that you, puny Christian, can't go on your own without them. It's like a fad diet or a weight loss program. We're drawn to the new, never-before-seen tricks of spiritual intimacy with the Father instead of the obvious everyday essentials God has put right on the front shelf in front of us. And here's how the Bible tells us that this journey begins. We can draw near to God because God has first drawn near to us. You see, the Bible tells us that our sin has separated us from the holy God who created us. God created mankind in His image in order that we might reflect and represent Him to the world. He made man to enjoy a beautiful relationship with Him. But instead of drawing near to God by living in faithful obedience to His Word, Adam and Eve tried to become God through another way. They listened to the serpent instead of resisting Him, even though they had dominion over Him. Their relationship with God was broken because God is holy and cannot tolerate sin. But God had determined before creation how He would take the initiative to mend our broken relationship with Him. He would pursue His unfaithful bride and reconcile her to Himself. And to do that, He would offer the blood sacrifice His people's sins required. But there's more to it than that. He didn't just offer the sacrifice. He became that sacrifice. God the Son became the substitute for all those who will ever repent of their sins and believe in Him. Though we had gone far off in pursuit of the world, He drew near to call us home. Jesus left heaven where He had existed from eternity past with the Father and the Spirit. He added humanity to His divinity and lived a perfect life on this earth and became the sacrifice for His people's sins by dying on a cross. But because He had no sins of His own, and because the Father received the payment for His people's sins as paid in full, God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, never to die again. And even now, Christ has ascended back into heaven and we know and wait for His soon return. Now, we can experience a restored relationship with God for all eternity. Now, though we are sinners, 
we can be brought near to the Holy One because of the sinlessness of another. Now, the way of salvation is open to all who will come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Because God has drawn near to us, we can draw near to Him when we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. Honored to have you with us. And you need to know that your greatest need is our greatest need. And that's for the presence of God in our lives. The world cannot satisfy you. Nothing it has to offer can compare with Jesus. And God offers to you the blessing and the beauty of His presence forever. But you will only receive it if you turn from your sins to Christ by faith. It's that simple. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Friend, draw near to God through faith in Christ and He will draw near to you. You may think, well, you don't know what I'm like. You don't know what I've done. But God has already answered your objections with the promise that if you will draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. That promise was secured 2,000 years ago by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then I plead with you to humbly receive that promise by faith this morning. But I also need to warn you that if you refuse, you will eventually be given what you have chosen for yourself. That is, life away from the presence of God. There's nothing good for you there. So please turn away from your sin and your friendship with this world that is fleeting and draw near to God through faith in Christ. When you do, God will fill you with His very presence. And as those of us who love Him can testify, in His presence there is fullness of joy. If you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be honored to talk to you in just a few moments. I'm going to spend some time applying this to our local church for those who are trusting in Christ, but would encourage you to be praying about how you need to respond even now. For those of us who are Christians, we should acknowledge that we don't always feel like God is near to us, even when we think we're trying to draw near to Him. I know that's my experience. Friends, we don't yet experience everything as we will one day. Remember, we're walking by faith and not by sight. And it's been my experience that God has used that longing and feeling like I I don't sense God's presence in my life the way I feel I should to cause me to really reflect what it is I want. Is it that I truly do want God's presence in my life? Or do I really mainly want the blessings that God can give me? What's driving that desire in me? If it truly is God, then you won't go anywhere else. You will wait for Him and trust that He will meet you where you are. But as surely as Christ has died and is now seated at the Father's right hand with a resurrection body, 
And as surely as the Scriptures tell us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, our feelings must not make us forget the reality. God is near to those who seek Him. And of course, as Christians, even though we aren't separated from God, that doesn't mean that there won't ever be relational distance between us, as you know if you're married. Remember, we can't draw near to God while pursuing sin. That's true. James rebukes his audience for the contradiction he sees in their lives as they're claiming to love God while being characterized by worldliness. So then he calls them to repent of that double-mindedness. They can't have the mind of God and the mind of the world. The two are at odds with one another. And James wants them to change what they're doing, but on a deeper level, more than that, he wants to change why they're doing those things in the first place. Their desires need to change along with their actions because of the one who is living within them. And that means that when there is sin in our lives, we ought to be broken over it. Again, remember, James is writing to Christians. But he doesn't say, oh, you're living in sin? Well, no, no, you know, just don't worry about that. It's no big deal because you can't lose your salvation. As Christians, our security in Christ should never lead us to respond to sin with celebration. We reveal that we're Christians by responding to sin with repentance, not by making light of it in the name of a triumph of grace. As is brought out in verses 8 and 9, we should be characterized by godly sorrow when we sin because of the shame that we've brought on His name and the distance that we've put between us. And these things aren't for show. They're not to earn God's forgiveness, but they are meant to signify how serious unrepentant sin is in the life of the Christian and the life of the church. One author puts it this way, true Christian joy can never be ours if we ignore or tolerate sin. It comes only when we have squarely faced the reality of our sin, brought it before the Lord in repentance and humility, and experienced the cleansing work of the Spirit. You see, as we draw near to God and He draws near to us, one of the results will be that we see ourselves and our sin more fully because we see Him more fully. And during our brief lives on this earth, the Lord will continue to reveal to us through His Word little pockets of sin that still need to be addressed. But instead of being discouraged as He's graciously exposing our sin, we should rejoice because He's laying out for our feet the path of greater intimacy with Him as we put that sin to death. And of course, we won't enjoy it all the time. It's painful. But if, as James says, we will have the victory over Satan, and if, as James says, we will know a closeness with God, then when we repent of our sin, it will only mean our good. So then let's pray that God would open our eyes to see our sin daily. Not to discourage us, but to encourage us with the opportunity that He is showing us we have to walk in greater intimacy with Him. Loved ones, let's be people of the light. 
who walk in the light, who confess before we're caught. Let's have honest conversations with one another about all of life in connection with this all-consuming passion we have to pursue the Lord. Ask yourself, maybe now, maybe this afternoon, how does drawing near to God show up in my family? How does drawing near to God show up in my career? How does drawing near to God show up in my hobbies? How much time did you spend this last week watching TV or scrolling through social media compared to the time you spent reading God's Word and praying? Friends, it takes humility to repent because repentance requires us to confess we were wrong. But as we live in repentance before the Father one day at a time, we know that we are that much closer to Him and to the day when our repentance will be over because our sin will be completely removed from us. And on that day, when we stand before the One our soul loves who is holy, 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 we will be rewarded with the fullness of His presence forevermore. So then in the midst of our own struggles, through the pain of our suffering, as we're gnawed by our unmet desires, the hope of our lives comes in drawing near to the One who has drawn near to us. Let's pray. Father, would You draw us to Yourself? We know that we cannot draw near to You if You do not first draw, to, uh, draw near to us. And we thank You that You have done that in Christ. Would You take us deeper? Would You bring us closer? Father, we know that we can't get any more of Your Spirit than we already have, but we believe that You can get more of us. So Father, we yield to You. We come and bow before you and ask that you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives. That we would follow you whatever the cost, whatever it takes, because you are worth it. Get glory in us and in this church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.